we are in a time limit, so let me begin. Limits of Hegel. Now, of course, in a first approach, this question may appear ridiculous. You just look at Hegel, this crazy speculative idealism, and so on and so on. I mean, it may appear that the question shouldn't be what is the limit of Hegel, but is there anything at all which is still of some use from Hegel? I nonetheless think that the question is worth posing, because this will be first part of my thesis, that, uh, and this is how you recognize a truly great thinker, that of course there are phenomena where Hegel fell short, couldn't grasp them. But it's not in the sense that, you know, there was some totally different logic which Hegel wasn't able to grasp. It is more as if what escaped Hegel in some phenomena was the very Hegelian dimension of it. You know, like the Hegel didn't see it. What do I mean by this? Okay, let me begin in a very simple, honest, empiricist way by a series of topics, concepts, operative, important in our times, where one can claim Hegel really cannot think them. First, the concept of repetition. I already spoke about this, I want to repeat it. <laughs> the point is, what kind of repetition? We all know Hegel does have even a very nice theory of repetition. But it's a repetition which is never, uh, let's call it zero repetition, just repetition. It's always a repetition through idealization or aufhebung, sublation. No? Like, you know the classical examples. The idea is what first happens and appears is experienced as something contingent. Through repetition, it is aufgehoben, turned into a notion. Like, ultra-classical example, I'm sorry, I repeat it all the time. Hegel's beautiful theory of Caesar. Caesar, first we have Caesar as a name, that guy who screwed uh, Cleopatra and so on, Julius Caesar. Then we get Caesar dies and returns precisely as Caesar the title, as a universal notion, idealization. It's, in this sense, what Hegel cannot think, we may say, but is it true? I think it's more ambiguous. It's uh, pure repetition, repetition without this moment of idealization, Aufhebung. In other words, and I think Gilles Deleuze is right when he focuses on two strange bedfellows which are part of the same, sorry to use this obscene word, spiritual constellation, Kierkegaard and Freud. I think Deleuze is right in emphasizing that there are two aspects to so-called post-Hegelian or post-idealist break in the 19th century. We usually focus too much on this uh, Marxian aspect of and Feuerbach and so on, positivity, like against the self-enclosed uh, 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 circle of ideas, the assertion of some positive reality and so on. But I think this is maybe even the less important part of the post-Hegelian break. What is truly new is repetition. Repetition in Kierkegaard, it's crucial, you know, that the whole Kierkegaard's edifice is Christianity, religion as repetition against philosophy for Kierkegaard, from, from Socrates, or Plato rather, to Hegel, like Erinnerung, Rememoration. 
And, of course, in Freud, it's absolutely crucial, the compulsion to repeat, which, as Freud emphasizes, is precisely this blind compulsion. So this is the first thing. The second thing, unconscious. Now, I will immediately elaborate this, because, in a way, Hegel definitely can think an unconscious. And I checked it up, even Lacan is aware of it. He says, I think, I may be wrong that it's in Seminar on Identification, that there is a Hegelian unconscious, but Lacan insists not the same as Freudian. Overdetermination. Then, this is the truly hard point, uh, modern formalized science. Hegel obviously dismisses it as something... Uh, pertaining to understanding as opposed to authentic reason, mechanical, and so on. And we can then say, can Hegel really think class struggle antagonism, like, in the, like class struggle, like sexual difference, and so on. Now I want to complicate things a little bit, because, you know, apropos each of these topics, we can demonstrate that it's never a question of Hegel simply cannot do it. It's, yes, he cannot do it, but, for example, with repetition, I will return it at the very end. I think, nonetheless, that we can find traces of precisely a non-productive repetition in Hegel. It's there, in the background, but it's there. Where? And again, if there will be time, but I suspect there will not be time, so I'm now, that my, so that my conscience will be clear, I will announce it. Uh, some of the apparently most problematic reactionary parts of Hegel have precisely this dimension. For example, let me go to the darkest of the darkest, Hegel's deduction of the necessity of war which is supposed, you know, opposing to this Kantian dream of uh, eternal peace. If you look closely at the reasoning behind it, you can see that Hegel was not, as he is usually interpreted by liberals today, Hegel was not into this dream of a bourgeois society as prosa, prose, like prosaic society, the antagonisms are over, we lead our peaceful lives, and so on. For Hegel... There has to be, from time to time, a war, not for any militaristic reasons, but for a purely conceptual necessity that uh, precisely there cannot be lasting peace between universal and particular. That from time to time, okay, Hegel gives here a reasoning which may sound almost reactionary, but they claim it's not. The idea is that uh, from time to time, we, we citizens living within our more or less satisfied, petty lives, each at our place, have to be reminded from time to time of the strength of abstract negativity. Like Hegel puts it in a wonderful, uh, uh, brutal way, ap uh, appropriate to his time. Now we would have even more horrible examples when he says that it's easy for a religious man to claim, oh, the vanity of all uh, uh, earthly life. No, no. But he said that this we do it in a hypocritical life. You, know, you say vanity, all eternal life is vain, and then you go to a nice restaurant and so on. No, But Hegel says it's slightly different when you really get this lesson, like when a foreign soldier 
with the with the saber is killing. He mentions like the Russians. The co- when the Cossack is killing your family in front of your house, you get the same lesson, but you get it for the real, no, of the vanity of the. So what I'm saying is that here. <coughs> is one example of how it's not true that Hegel's ultimate vision is that of peace of the developed, prosaic, bourgeois society. He knows that there is an excess of negativity which repeatedly has to be reasserted. And if there will be time, what I would like to do, because this is the game I'll be playing today, today, push Hegel forwards beyond Hegel, but through Hegel. I think what I will try, some of the developments may be even known to you, is to show, apropos three, four topics, how Hegel was inconsistent with himself. Where was he inconsistent? I claim that uh, what Hegel, because again, the point of his theory of war is that, again, the meaning of the war is not external. It's not from time to time we, we have to show to the others that we are stronger or whatever. No. The, the true meaning of war is purely that you should experience your own abstract freedom, negativity, and so on. So what Hegel should have done is what I'm tempted to call the and it can be, I will do it in my next book, the one that you graciously mentioned, uh, m- much more in detail, namely uh, uh, to demonstrate how, you know what Hegel should have done there, the, what I like to call the Thomas Jefferson step, to say not only war with outside, but from, you know, this wonderful totalitarian metaphor of Thomas Jefferson, uh, that uh, the tree of liberty has to be watered by blood from time to time, uh, no, this and even here, an idea came to me, a Hegelian idea of synthesis of the opposites. Uh, this is what I like about the Jacobins, where in their terror, the state terror against the individuals, everyone could have been guillotined, in a way overlaps by the popular terror. You know, it's both at the same time. I think we need to shake us up from time to time some kind of Jacobinical terror. I would even go a step further and say that uh, the status of this terror is the same as the status of madness. In that... Uh, what do you do think? That you own the world and can be late or what? Okay, sorry. He's my best friend. You can guess from what I said. Uh, okay. Uh, that... Uh, you know, I published it in a book with Continuum, together with the German guy, Marcus Gabriel, Hegel's Theory of Madness. Again, he is more Foucault than Michel Foucault, I claim there. He wonderfully developed how madness is not just an abstract possibility, but it's an, a necessary step on the path to humanity. Humanity can... You don't pass from animal to human directly, you have to go through this step of, at least, threat of madness. It's only as a reaction to madness that the properly human dimension of what Hegel calls Gewohnheit, customs, emerges. And Hegel also has there a wonderful theory how mechanical customs, discipline, you learn something without understanding it, is the basis of all humanity. You have to begin with this blind drill, and so on. Only then. So again, 
There he is consequent, Hegel. There he admits that it's not that madness as a possibility of this radical outbreak of radical negativity is sublimated, sorry, sublated, aufgehoben in some higher spiritual unity. No, it's only that uh, it always remains there lurking beneath as a possibility to explode. All that Hegel had to do, but was a little bit too caught for me, is to follow, again, his own logic also to the domain of social order, war, and so on. Okay, more about this later. Let me move now to the unconscious. I think that linked to this topic of the unconscious is the topic of overdetermination. Here we can make a good argument that Hegel, what he cannot do is the Freudian unconscious. That is to say, Hegelian unconscious is, is a transcendental unconscious of the form. You know how in one of the key passages of the uh, 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 introduction to phenomenology, when Hegel describes the emergence of a new form of life, he says it happens, but the individuals just experience it as coming from nowhere. They don't see its formal aspect. And Hegel repeats this again and again, like when we speak, we don't see the universal character of what we say. You know, already at the most elementary, the beginning of phenomenology, sense certainty, when Hegel says, you say now, you mean this now, what you don't know is that it's a universal every now, and so on. So again, for Hegel, unconscious is the abstract form. Uh, the Freudian unconscious, of course, is totally particular contingent. Like, this is maybe what Hegel cannot think, sorry to mention an example that you maybe know, in, uh, for example, one of the wonderful dreams that I really like from Freud's interpretation of dreams is uh, a woman patient who reports to Freud a dream that she was at a funeral, felt very sad, and so on and so on. Then Freud discovers again what's the meaning of the dream. It's that at that funeral she encountered her ex-love and was very glad about it. But in no way can you get at this point through a hermeneutic analysis of the dream. Everything is there to cheat. She feels sad, funeral, and so on and so on. You see, the whole point is this totally contingent partial connection. Uh, this brings us to overdetermination. Hegel, in a formal sense, can think over determination, again, in this formal sense of what he calls oppositional determination, that an element can be overdetermined by itself, in the sense that, as even Marx refers to this in the, uh, that introduction to Grundrisse, methodological introduction, how uh, uh, you have four species, no production, uh, distribution, exchange, consumption, and that production encounters itself as its own species. is in this purely formal sense overdetermined. But again, what Hegel cannot think is the complex network of particular links organized along the contingent lines of condensation, this uh, uh, displacement, and so on. Or in more general terms, the Hegelian process always deals with uh, radical, clear-cut solutions or resolutions. 
What is foreign to Hegel is the Freudian logic of pragmatic, opportunistic compromises. This is, I think, maybe the true limit. Not that Hegel was not radical enough, but that Hegel was too radical in the sense that, you know, when you have a tension, Hegel's automatic reaction is, let's push it to the end, resolve it. Well, isn't the whole of Freudian unconscious one big shitty compromise? You know, in the sense of, I like that, but I don't want to admit it, so let's do a compromise, let's stage it, but let's not quite admit it, and so on and so on. So we get a kind of a complicated network of distortions where, uh, uh, where again, there is no clear resolution. Just think about maybe Freud's most famous case, sorry, example, that of Signorelli from the beginning of psychopathology of everyday life. You know the story. Freud himself couldn't recall the name of the painter of the Orvieto frescos, Signorelli, and produce as substitutes the names of two other painters, Botticelli and Boltraffio. And then his analysis brings to light the process of associations which links Signorelli to Botticelli and Boltraffio. The village, Trafoi, was where Freud received the message of the suicide of one of his patients. Her, uh, 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 her like Signor, her, the German word for master, is linked to a trip to Herzegovina, Bosnia and Herzegovina, when an old Muslim told Freud that after you no longer can engage in sex, there is no reason to go on living, and so on and so on. But you see the point. You don't get a clear cut or whatever. You get just a series of connections with no final radical, with no final radical resolution. On the, again, but again, I'm, even here I'm a little bit tempted to, to defend Hegel, at least on two counts. First, it's not quite true that Hegel uh, doesn't always opt for a clear-cut resolution. You know, maybe the most famous passage in entire Hegel in phenomenology uh, of, uh, of master and servant, the fight, I mean, the result there is a compromise. They don't go to the end. The point is, if we fight really to the end, one will die, it has no sense. So it's a kind of a symbolic compromise there. Point two, even the form of the unconscious, this is Freud as his best, which is typically Hegelian unconscious. You also find it in Freud. For example, it's much more complex in Freud, but I give you the simplified gist of it. Uh, there is a patient woman who comes to Freud and says she remembers a dream, but it's uncertain dream, she cannot identify who the man is in the dream and so on. So it appears a formal, purely formal uncertainty. I don't see it clearly and so on. And then Freud gets the point that this formal uncertainty is the form of the return to what the woman is not ready to confront at the level of content. What is repressed as content returned in the form. It's to put it in vulgar terms, her uncertainty, who is the father? <laughs> no? That this quite clear uncertainty of, again, of the content, she's not ready to admit it, so it returns as pure form. It's blurred, I don't know who that person is, and so on and so on. Then we have uh, the problem 
of jouissance, uh, 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 of enjoyment, as opposed to mere pleasure. Here also, what Hegel can think is nonetheless jouissance as such. He's not as stupid as it may appear. For example, in surprising places, look at his lessons on the philosophy of religion, when Hegel there talks about uh, uh, what is the aim of religious ritual. He says it's brutally to produce enjoyment. That, you know, the, 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 what happens in, in praying, in the act of praying, Hegel is not bullshitting there. No, you are doing literally for your enjoyment and so on. But nonetheless, the motive which is central for Freud and especially Lacan, the motive of the gap between the true and the real, the real of jouissance, jouissance. This gap, Hegel maybe cannot get it. Let me give you here a brief quote of one of late Lacan's seminars, seminar 19, sorry, 29, from uh, uh, 76, where Lacan says, a quote, session of December 14th, 76, the true or the real, at this level, everything is set up as if these two terms are synonymous. But the unpleasant thing is that they are not. When we are dealing with the real, the true is in divergence, and so on, and so on. So let's go, then, uh, okay, we have other moments, but now let me start a defense of Hegel. Ah, uh, yes, sorry. If you have, of course, then, as already mentioned, uh, another crucial example, that of modern science. It is nonetheless unfortunately clear here, even I cannot fully defend Hegel, that his universe is not yet the universe of modern formalized science. It is clear in his uneasiness with Galileo and Newton how he tries to, to as it were, supplement this natural science, emerging formal natural sciences, with some kind of a more conceptual underpinning. Hegel simply has no sense for this dimension here. Oh, uh, and along the same lines, if I may permit myself uh, a brief detour, I think that Adorno was right, if you like classical music, uh, when uh, he said that the greatest task of everyone who really likes Bach, Bach, the boring guy with music, uh, that, uh, that uh, to defend Bach against himself, against his defenders, no? Because it's very popular for the last 50 years to defend Bach as a kind of a pre-modern, organic, fully religious composer against, against later modernization, like you know, in Bach as a traditional composer. You find peace in these large harmonious structures before all the modernist or even romantic excesses. But as Adorno points out, Bach is the Newton of music. He's, uh, uh, you should just read a little bit of the history, historical situation of Bach. Uh, you know how Bach was perceived by his contemporaries? As an, he was not very popular. Why? Because the idea was he is too much of a formalist playing with abstract mathematical variations, 
not enough melody. The true reactionary was Bach's son, Christoph something, I don't know, who, it's interesting to learn, was towards the end of Bach's life much more popular than his father. Why? Because the reaction to Bach was Italian. Italian melody singing, which was precisely perceived as a return to authentic sentiments against all those abstractions and so on. What is crucial? Now, we'll make my point in a very simple way, of course. What is crucial is that, uh, you know, this is common topic, we know it all, how modernity proper emerges with this Cartesian formalized mathematical universe, but it's different mathematic from not only pre-modern, but even Renaissance mathematics. Here, for example, Kepler, although Marx as a German uh, nationalist always says, no, no, Kepler better than Newton, but this is Marx, the German stuff. Uh, uh, there, of course, you have elevation of mathematic, but it's part of this bullshit of harmonia mundi, you know, cosmic music, harmony of the world, and so on, with Bach, it is precisely that we enter in a brutal way into this uh, modern, as Pascal would have put it, uh, uh, silent, abstract universe where you cannot rely on any of these uh, 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 celestial harmonies between our world, celestial world. We are in an abstract world and the whole problem of Bach is how to invent from his mathematical combination, an artificial harmony. He has to construct it. You no longer can rely on all these natural harmonies, on this Pythagorean bullshit, you know, numbers, their secret meanings, and so on and so on. So, uh, again, it's on the contrary, I claim, the reaction to Bach, which is truly, uh, which is truly, uh, which is in a way, the reaction, or even there, my God, you see where my true love is, music and so on, uh, even there, uh, all great guys were bothered by Bach. Bach is at the origin, literally, of end of classicism, of musical modernism. You know in what sense? You know what is the problem of, Beethoven, of the late Beethoven? He perfected what Haydn and Mozart did uh, the sonata forum, and then his big problems was he felt that, that in all this sonata bullshit, something precious that you find in Bach, Fug, and so on, is lost. So, modernity, it's a very nice dialectic, modernity started not as an attempt to, we are stifled by old forums, let's look forward, but no, by the inside that, in the classical music, something was lost from that was there in Bach, and that how to revitalize uh, that part. Even at this level, I even am trying now to write something, but I, I'm not sure I will, because it's too close to pure bluff, no? Uh, that uh, uh, to save in a materialist way uh, romanticism in music. Because I participated in some stupid round table in France, where some people who really know uh, thought that you know, if you look at really great romantic pieces of music, it's not spiritualism. Forget about all that bullshit about, you know, beyond the misery of terrestrial life, whatever. No, no. The greatness of... A guy in France explained it to me in wonderful terms. When we were listening to some wonderful, I underestimated him, uh, uh, piano 
piano piece by uh, Felix Mendelssohn. How uh, romanticism proper begins when the moment melody is not simply given, but you have as if to struggle with the musical material to, to, to generate the melody, you know. In Mozart, even early uh, Beethoven, it's not a problem. The melody is here. You state it or the motive, and then you play all those stupid ballerina forums, you variations on it. But the proper of romanticism is this long struggle to painfully generate the melody. Even great roman... Okay. Now, I will admit, together with Badiou, he is also deep in this shit, uh, my limitations. Like, Badiou once admitted to me, he told me, don't tell anyone. So, of course, <laughs> that's called dialectic. That, that he likes Mahler, but that he discovered Mahler through uh, Visconti, Death in Venice. You know that one? Not, <laughs> we got him here, no? I mean, no, uh, you know who is Alain Badiou, no? The guy who thinks uh, Bridges of the Madison County is a great film and so on, no? We got him. No, but seriously, yeah. No, but seriously. Uh, 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 take that famous adagetto that we all know. It's in all those, you know, classical, mu classical music in cinema, all those uh, 99 pence DVDs with the troll. But what happens there, this is, I think, okay, it's late romanticism already, but romanticism at its purest. This painful, slow struggle for the melody to emerge. Again, I think it's a very materialist movement. And I think this is... Now I will be betray my low-class Balkan origins. <laughs> this is what makes slightly boring, for example, Beethoven's late, uh, late sonatas, no? Piano sonatas. That you already have this struggle with the material. Uh, and then, of course, all this explodes in uh, uh, Schumann, Schubert, and so on and so on. Or if you want other pieces, I am in my perverse attitude, I told myself that is Adorno, I asked myself, is Adorno really right to attack so ferociously, you know, who are the two absolute bad guys for Adorno in music, uh, Sibelius and Tchaikovsky. Like, there it is, like, Adorno becomes a uh, Gebelsian, like, burn them. <laughs> but I think that, uh, uh, if you know it, Sibelius... Fourth symphony is nonetheless not total shit. I agree with Adorno that number two, all those Finland stuff, freedom, blah, blah. But uh, fourth symphony, go to the third movement, and it's, I think, even better than Adagetto of Mahler. This kind of a melody with pain trying to formulate itself, but it, it fails. Okay. Uh, uh, so let's now go nonetheless back to... Uh, back to uh, back to Hegel. Uh, the point is, this would be my first basic point. That again, it's not a question of simply moving beyond Hegel, but it's the the point is to demonstrate how what Hegel doesn't see again is not some post-Hegelian dimension totally outside his grasp, but the very Hegelian dimension of what is. Coming. For example, when Marx demonstrated in his Capital how the self-reproduction of capital obeys the logic of the Hegelian process of 
substance subject which retroactively posits its own presuppositions. He there, the unheard of character of Marx does there is to, as it were, implicitly in capital, he beats Hegel at its own terrain. His point is not, oh, Hegel, stupid idealist, here is real life. No, his point is, and I like this formulation, that the way to produce materialist Hegel is to claim that Hegel, in some crucial domains, wasn't idealist enough. Because, as uh, Fred Jensen uh, pointed it out uh, very nicely uh, in his uh, this book on phenomenology, uh, Variations on Phenomenology or whatever, it's that uh, Hegel's, uh, I quote Fred Jensen, despite his familiarity with Adam Smith and emergent economic doctrine, Hegel's conception of work and labor, I have specifically characterized it as a handicraft ideology, betrays no anticipation of the originalities of industrial production or the factory system. That is to say, uh, again, Hegel thinks in an almost naive materialist way that production is just me as a concrete individual working on some stuff and so on. What he doesn't see is a very Hegelian point, how in capitalism this concrete interaction between me, others and the staff is regulated by the abstraction of the capital. How, you know, precisely the Hegelian notional subject substance is there. Uh, and uh, I'm so sad we don't have more time, or maybe I'm hypocritical here and uh, it's nice, but uh, uh, please, I beseech you to read his politically, don't worry, when we take power he goes to Gulag. But nonetheless, he's not an idiot. Robert Pippin, the American Hegelian, who nonetheless, in his last good book, last good book, the latest one on Hegel, uh, Hegel's ethics or whatever is not good, uh, but the previous one, The Persistence of Subjectivity, Pippin has a wonderful text on, along the same lines, on, it's worth reading, on Hegel and the modern art, where I think in a model-like way he shows how Hegel was too, went too fast in uh, predicting the end of art. Although, of course, Hegel knew this doesn't mean simply art with stop, whatever. But he claims that Hegel was not able to imagine art beyond representation, this realist representation and so on. And Pippin claims that, again, he was not Hegelian enough here, that if you just apply to visual arts Hegel's notion of uh, of subjective reflexivity, mediation, and so on, you can clearly, in a beautiful way, uh, uh, generate, in a purely Hegelian way, the concept of modern abstract painting. You see, this is, I think, how it should be done. So, okay, let me now go a little bit to, uh, to go on. Uh, let me now go a little bit to uh, this Hegel and Marx topic. So, again, of course, it, you can say it's true that Hegel's limitation was here a purely historical one. Like, of course, he couldn't write about what he wasn't able to see. Although it's more complex, because I think the first financial crises were already there and so on. So it was a kind of self-blindness. So, again, let me dwell a little bit on this. 
It is clear, for example, if you read the capital of Marx, not only part one, uh, sorry, not only first chapter for uh, value, forms of value, but especially, I think it's chapter seven, I'm not sure, uh, the passage from money to capital. It's clearly formulated in Hegelian terms of the passage from substance to subject. With capital, value is no longer just a substance, the universality within which we exchange commodities, but it becomes subject in the sense of agent, self-positing, and so on and so on. And uh, why maybe Hegel wasn't able to do it? I think I already quoted this passage here. It's from a book by a very good uh, writer on Hegel who recently died, the French guy uh, Gérard Lebrun, who says that, that what is so new in the capital of Marx is that capital is a subject in the Hegelian sense, self-positing, self-mediating agent, but an automatic subject. That is to say, a subject which, again, we are back to repetition, just wants more, more profit, just blindly repeats itself. So again, a nice point. What Hegel wasn't able to think is not some dimension beyond, but this weird unity of subjectivity, which for Hegel is always life, living, creative subjectivity, a subjectivity which is at the same time that blindly repetitive. It's this unity of blind automatism, repetition, and conceptual self-mediation which uh, Hegel missed there. Of course, things are here more complicated. I'm aware of it. That is to say, uh, when Marx describes the dance of capital, capital's self-reproduction, as this Hegelian process of the substance, value, acting of subject, mediating itself, positing its presuppositions, and so on. Of course, for Marx, this is not the ultimate truth. For Marx, of course, the ultimate truth is that the autonomy of this process of self self-generation of value, it's an ideological myth. Ultimately, it, it feeds itself on the exploitation of workers, and so on, and so on. But nonetheless, uh, I, we can say that what Hegel describes here is something which is very mysterious, because it's not simply ideology in the sense of how bourgeois individuals perceive themselves, but it's not also the brutal reality, which is that of workers' exploitation. It's something in between that we can call the, the objective fantasy of capital. Uh, so, uh, again, here we, I don't want today to enter into, uh, into all those problems of, of, uh, of the ambiguous status of the reference to Hegel's dialectic in Marx. I already, I think, mentioned it. How? If you read it closely, you have two fundamentally different references in Grundrisse manuscripts. For Marx, the Hegelian dialectical process is still, let's call it naively, the model of liberation. You know that fa famous text, which is brilliant, of course, the pre-capitalist modes of production. This is a pure Hegelian rereading of history. You start with so-called primitive societies where you have the substantial unity, then you get gradual alienation, 
which reaches its high point with proletarians, pure abstract subjectivity from which all the substantial content is taken, and then you have reconciliation, subjectivity reconciled with substance. What happens in capital is something totally different, I claim. There, Hegelian dialectical process is not a model for the process of liberation, but rather a model for the very alienated logic of the capitalist reproduction. And now the big question is here, I don't have time to enter into it today, the big question here would have been, uh, was the late Marx simply right? This was the reading, this is the predominant reading of Frankfurt School. What we are, to put it in terms of the so-called Western Marxism, Lukács is the model of the of the first reading. Hegel is the, Hegel's the dialectical process is a mystified version of the process of liberation. Lukács, even in his history and class consciousness, says it literally. He says Hegel was right, he just applied his dialectical matrix on the wrong subject. He literally says, he must have known it, it's too simple, replace absolute spirit with working class and you got it. But uh, Adorno, Marcuse, and so on, for them, dialectic is not dialectic of liberation, but the very form of the self-reproduction of alienated society. So, and you have this permanent motive in Adorno, in, Mar in Marcuse, I'm talking here about especially Hegel and Revolution, the younger Marcuse, who is much better, and so on, than the late one. Namely, that uh, this idea that liberation, communism, whatever we call it, will be a step out of dialectics. Dialectics is the logic of alienated society, where everything turns into its opposite, and so on, and so on. Uh, my solution here, again, this is kind of a blurb to arouse you, <laughs> maybe, like, read my book, is that uh, I think we should do a much more daring move here. Namely, what I find problematic in both Lukács and Adorno and Marcuse is uh, their reading of Hegel as if what Hegel calls reconciliation is the simple subjective appropriation of the substance, you know. You are the subject, you alienate yourself, you produce the substantial content, and then in communism you reappropriate it. I don't think Hegel is in this sense a subjectivist. I think if you really want to understand Hegel, you should see that what he calls reconciliation, it's not this like like voracious subjective idea or ooh, collective subject will swallow all reality or whatever, it's a much more, even I'm tempted to say, pessimist move. I'm so sad we don't have time, but I want to uh, uh, signal to you a novel that I really liked. And I think it's absolutely not a racist novel, as some people claimed. Uh, again, I have a problem here. Can you help me? I know whatever I will say will be wrong, namely how to pronounce the name, the South African guy. Not Nadine. Co, co? Fuck you. Even. Okay, whatever. Yeah, yeah, okay. You know, of course, I'm talking of his disgrace. One of the darkest novels that I know. I think it's totally wrong to read it as simple reaction of a, of a deceived 
liberal to the new South Africa. You know, like, we fought for their freedom, now they treat us as if we are their tribal slaves or whatever. But what I want to say is that the final situation of the hero, you know, this, you lose everything, this total loss, this is maybe the closest we get to maybe to Hegelian uh, reconciliation. If you want to understand what Hegel means by reconciliation, re that. Ah, now comes the three minutes of my boasting. No, I hate myself for doing it, which is why I like to do it. You know, yesterday I had a tea with Rafe, Rafe Fines, you know, and he, ha, 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 and he told me, you know, that he would have been better. You saw the movie, you should buy it. You get a cheap disgrace with John Malkovich. But Rafe told me that he was the first candidate and that he admitted it to me that he rejected it out of pure vanity. He told me it was 10 years ago, he wasn't even 40 at that point, and he said, no, I will not play a white guy who is 50. <laughs> pure. But I think maybe he would have been, for this bitterness and so on, maybe he would have been even better. Okay, so again, this is another topic. We don't have time to go into it now. Uh, this idea of uh, that maybe the way to go back to Hegel is to abandon this basic hyper-idealist uh, subjectivist reading, as if Hegelian reconciliation means subject swallows everything. No, it's not that. I think it's something much closer to this Christian moment of, you know, you get out of alienation not by overcoming it, but by way of redoubling it. You know, the formula is for me, the one that I always quote, that Hegel's formula, secrets of the Egyptians for us, were also secrets for the Egyptians themselves. It's just this shift from my alienation from the substance to the substance being screwed up in itself already, <laughs> to simplify things. But okay, let's not go this path, it would have brought us too much. The, the, the thing I want to draw your attention to is the simple fact, which is crucial, how to go beyond Hegel means paradoxically to, the, to discover a Hegelian dimension, like in modern art, modern abstract art, like in developed capitalism, to dis discover Hegelian dimension precisely in what Hegel wasn't able to grasp. Like, what Hegel... Hegel not only was not this absolute narcissist in the sense of, oh, I see everywhere my own system. No, paradoxically, my point would have been that he wasn't enough of a narcissist, no? He didn't see, for example, how contemporary capitalism is more... Hegelian sometimes than Hegel himself. Then there is the third point which brings us, it's a very delicate point, to the true limit of Hegel, unfortunately. Social limit but which has conceptual consequences. Namely, Hegel comes at that point where we have a passage from traditional society, master servitude to modern bourgeois society of formal equality and freedom. And maybe precisely because he wasn't able to think capitalism properly, uh, what Hegel couldn't have imagined, I think, is the basic paradox of capitalist societies, which is that you have formal legal equality, we are all free citizens, but that a, uh, a uh, but that relationship of domination 
reproduces itself precisely under the form of equality. I don't think Hegel was able to think domination, class distinction, domination, which is still here even when you abolish all traditional forms of direct domination. And uh, here I would like again to quote Fred Jameson, a wonderful passage where he says that in a modern democracy, the social leveling we are witnessing in modern democracy, I quote Jameson, certainly does not exclude the emergence of wealth and of profound distinctions between rich and poor, even in the socialist countries. Nor is it in any way to be understood at the end of classes in their economic sense. There are still workers and managers in these societies. There is still profit and exploitation, reserve armies of the unemployed, and so on. But the new cultural equality is infused with a powerful hatred of hierarchy and special privileges and with a passionate resentment of caste, caste distinctions and inherited cultural superiority. Now comes, maybe you already know it, the brilliant phrase. By, it is in our societies permitted to be wealthy so long as the rich man is as vulgar as everyone else, you know. I think this, uh, this is the paradox, but a wonderful, again, Hegelian paradox, which I claim gives to us an unexpected possibility of a genuine proletarian reappropriation of the high culture. So, what's my point here? Again, that all these three cases that I enumerated seems, seem to call for a Hegelian analysis. Workers reduced to an appendix of machinery. A, hier a hierarchy persisting in the very form of plebeianization, and so on and so on. Here, we have to go to think further than Hegel. And now I want to make, again, another step further and just in the remaining half an hour, explain, apropos of a couple of cases, how Hegel was not consequent enough measured by his own standards. Already two days, no, yesterday, I think, I mentioned this paradox of the king, how the king should, the proper king should be an idiot who just, and so on and so on. Uh, uh, and that it's difficult to be a king because to be a good king you must accept that you are a pure puppet, an idiot. I want to give you, I'm sorry if I repeat myself, maybe I already used it years ago, uh, an ultimate example of what does it mean king's utter alienation. Uh, there is, I'm sorry if you know it, an anecdote from the Prussian-Austrian War in 1866. There was this was one of the last battles still done in a traditional way. You know, soldiers fighting in the valley, up on the hills, the king with his headquarters observing the battle. So in this last battle, the Prussian king, formerly the supreme commander of the Prussian army, was observing the fight from a nearby hill. He was very worried because it appeared to him that his troops were retreating, that there is at least a confusion. And then... All of a sudden, General Moltke, von Moltke, the great uh, Prussian strategist who planned this battle, you know, in the middle of this chaos, uh, the king sweating, oh my God, are we losing, ours are retreating. The guy who knew what is happening, uh, General, turned to the king 
and told him, may I be the first to congratulate your majesty for a brilliant victory, you know, <laughs> because he knew we, we won. But uh, this, I think, is what I like. Like, the king formally won, but he was a total idiot, he didn't know. But it must be attributed to you. This is what, in a way, I think Lacan means when he talks about, uh, the, uh, 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 about the decentered subject. There is no subject more decentered than the king. So I think here Marx is wrong in his critique of uh, Hegelian notion of monarchy, in his notes towards critique of Hegel's philosophy of law, where Marx, a proposed Hegelian deduction of monarchy, explodes. He says that for Hegel, and he thinks this is a great critical point he's making against Hegel, that for Hegel, King is nothing more than an appendix to his penis. But my point is that this precisely is what Hegel wants to say. That, uh, 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 that is to say... Uh, Hegel's point is precisely that king is a pure symbolic authority. As Hegel says, literally, repeating Kierkegaard, okay, Kierkegaard comes after, who repeats whom, that, that uh, the, the duty of Hegel is not to understand anything. His bureaucrats have to understand things. The duty of the king is to sign his name, which means that in actuality, his duty is to breed his successor. It's purely, it's the point where pure ideality of a pure signifier, I sign my name, coincides with its opposite, with just your duty is to behave nicely and breed children. Don't be wise and so on. Now, why this? I'm, now, we'll be very short because I know that here I uh, repeat myself. Uh, uh, because Hegel knew something which, a lesson which we, had to learn in a hard way in the 20th century. That when you have a government grounded, which tries to be grounded fully in effective qualities of the leaders, you get what we call totalitarianism. That in order for a power structure to function in a minimally open way, you have to have some kind of contingency on the top. And that's Hegel's point that uh, the whole point of having a monarch is not to allow all the power to state bureaucracy, to have some empty, totally contingent checkpoint on the top. In this sense, it's the dialectical beauty. Hegel's state of reason means precisely you have to include the moment of pure irrationality on the top. And I think that the same goes even for true democracy. I'm more and more convinced that uh, democracy needs a moment of contingency of lottery. My, my God, ancient Greeks were aware of it. In Venice, in their great epoch, they were aware of it. This is the horror of Stalinism, that uh, Stalin precisely wasn't like a king or a despot. No, he pretended to know, really, the greatest scientists and so on and so on. Uh, we have to admit this gap. Of course, we can debate, and I agree with it, that Hegel didn't see that democracy can also function as introducing this element of contingency. I agree with those who claim. But nonetheless, when Hegel spoke about the king as this moment of pure contingency on the top, he saw 
something uh, very deep. The next problem, uh, what Hegel didn't, maybe for conformist political reason, wasn't able to accept is that we have this irrational excess on the top, the king, pure biology, pure contingency, and then, I mean, Hegel is really aware of it. I mean, again, read his philosophy of right, where he says, but if king is determined by pure contingency of birth, doesn't this mean that the fate of the state is let is left to natural caprice? Like the way the king is born, I don't know if he is furious, we will have more wars or whatever. And then Hegel says, no, you missed the point. King just signs the papers. It doesn't matter what kind of character he is and so on. Uh, but then uh, I think what Hegel didn't see is to connect this excess on the top, excess of irrationality, with the excess on the bottom, the so-called rebel, pebble, this part of no part of the social body. I already spoken about it, so I will be brief here. You know what's the point. Hegel saw very clearly that modern capitalist society has its classes and so on, but it necessarily produces an excess of rebel, of those for whom there is no place within the social body. And Hegel even openly admitted that there is no solution. Hegel says we are trying to deal with it, and he just pragmatically enumerates solutions, like uh, colonization, charity, whatever, but he says in, in the long term it will not work. Because he is well aware of this circular paradox, because he says the more we are getting rich, the more we necessarily produce the rebel. Again, I'm repeating here myself, so I will be brief, I know. What, for political reasons, I claim, Hegel was not ready to admit is how uh, this part of no part, the rebel, precisely insofar as it has no specific place within social body, stands immediately for the universality. This idea of the excess is the place of universality, this was too much for Hegel. But again, following his theory, he should have said it. Here, Hegel, here everything is decided. Like, was Hegel a proto-fascist or not? I claim that by, by refusing to draw this conclusion, Hegel came dangerously close to that soft fascist tendency which was then later fully developed by the conservative English neo-Hegelians like uh, MacTaggart and so on. No? This idea that, you know, the Hegelian vision is to counteract abstract individuality by way of constructing kind of a, a state of estates where everyone is at his or her own place and so on. But again, Hegel knew, this is the ABC of Hegelian dialectic, that you never can find peace in such a harmonious, articulated social body, that always universality has to assert itself as such against its particular embodiments in the guise of war, in the guise here of, uh, in the guise of the rebel, uh, and so on, and so on. Okay, but I already uh, spoke 
about it, uh, so let's go on. We have now already two, three, this kind of excesses. We have the excess of the king, where precisely the, you see the paradox, the, the social, the top of the social hierarchy, the king, is reduced in a way to pure animality. No, it's at the same time the highest, pure name, but in its reality, totally alienated. We have this. We have rebel. And again, here, as many intelligent uh, uh, writers, uh, interprets of Hegel noticed, Hegel is very clear. He basically, not even between the lines, you just have to read him, he legitimizes revolution. Because he says... Uh, this rebel, these are people to whom society denied basic recognition. So, he says, they don't owe anything to society. If they rebel, we have no right to condemn them. Uh, so, uh, but nonetheless, again, uh, you know, this idea, which was later articulated by Marx, you know, that uh, precisely the working class as no class, as the class which cannot realize itself as a class, stands for the universality of humanity. No? This is, again, what unfortunately Hegel, the conclusion Hegel doesn't draw apropos rebel, but I think that this is where Hegel is actual today, because if there is, now, if you, there are some ultra-orthodox traditional Marxists here, they will explode against me. But I claim that the point is not to do what traditional Marxist readers of Hegel did, by claiming, yeah, yeah, this was the limit of Hegel, he used this vague term, rebel, but now we know it's the working class and so on. No, if anything, today, with whatever you call it, late capitalism. I don't like the term because capitalism is late from its beginning. You know, my standard joke. Like, Marx was saying capitalism is rotting, no? As a matter of fact, the first guy to say that capitalism is rotting were already the British romantics, I think, no? Then, you know, then Lenin said imperialism, the last stage, rotting capitalism. Then Mao said American imperialism in 1950s, that this last stage got so absolutely rotten, that, you know, like, but okay, unfortunately, the more it is rotting, the better it is doing. No, no. Okay, what I want to say now is that aren't we today in our stage of capitalism, in a way, partially at least, returning from the unique position of proletariat, as self-conscious working class, to rebel. By rebel, I mean different kinds of exclusions, of those who are excluded. In other words, it seems clear to me that we no longer can count on only exclusively or even predominantly on working class as such. I think that uh, capitalism has learned today to play in a much more cynical way with the working class. This is even to refer today, but here I fully support you. I think I mentioned this the first day here. Just look, I don't know how it is again in your country, but in my country, look at the status of strikes today. 90% I support them, but I was opposed to strikes in my country. Why? Because I already told you to some of the strikes. In my country, Slovenia, now, the situation is horrible. Construction workers, uh, uh, textile working women, they are just fired and so on. 
They don't dare to strike, not even to raise their voice, because if they strike, they tell them, fuck off, perfect. You, uh, you know, uh, those who can uh, strike, the tragedy is that in some countries, strike can even be a privilege today. You must have a very firm position to even be able to afford a strike. Like in Slovenia, who is striking? Doctors who are already relatively very well paid, uh, judges are striking, obstructing, uh, policemen like to strike, everybody loves how, how corrupted they are and so on, no? And stupid, you know. This is what I like, nonetheless, in Slovenia. It still has this old socialist legacy of the Western countries, I think only France had it, uh, that, that, uh, that policemen are stupid, you know. And you have all these jokes of how they are, for example, you know these standard jokes, like why are the policemen always three in a group? With one, one knows how to read, the other how to write, and the third one controls them if they read or write correctly, or whatever. <laughs> or my, my favorite one, uh, I'm sorry, it's slightly vulgar, but it's about, it combines stupidity and corruption. A policeman comes home and hears, just entering the door, uh, some of these, okay, I will not make them, <laughs> sex voices, no? So he enters and sees her wife a little bit red in the face, of course, he got it, no? His wife was screwing someone. So he says, I will find him, no? Looks around, looks around, then looks beneath the bed. For, for 20 seconds you hear nothing, no? And then he comes up and says, okay, I was mistaken, everything is okay, and so on and so on, no? And then uh, he... Later we learn to his friend what happened. No, he looked down and he says to his friend, you know, I made some money because the guy who was screwing my wife bribed me so that I said there is nobody there. <laughs> and this time, you know, these people uh, uh, strike. <laughs> Slovenia, no? No, it really, here I'm really becoming a classical working class defender, women, women who were working in a textile factory for 30 years, my God. And now all they get is this postmodern bullshit, you know, recreate yourself, this is an opportunity to invent a new job or whatever, no? So, again, uh, all this points out towards how maybe there is a time to reactualize Hegel's notion of rebel, precisely as the name you know, because, again, okay, you know my old thesis that uh, capitalism today is no longer, and I think it will be less and less able, even to sustain its own normative structure, which is that of exploitation under the pretext of full personal freedom, legal equality, and so on. I think more and more, obviously, it needs forms of partial exclusion, like immigrant workers, outsourcing, and so on and so on. So, okay, uh, my next point is that the same structure of an excess which stands for universality would have been, again, ah, uh, sorry, uh, another thing which I think uh, would be very helpful is, again, the, another reason why it is productive to connect these two excesses excess at the top, excess at the bottom, is that if we unite these two, the contingent excess on the top, the excess on the bottom, rebel, is that isn't this the formula of a populist authoritarian regime? As Marx says, what is the secret of Napoleon III? That 
Okay, he pretended to, in a corporate way, proto-fascist way, to represent every class, no? Do, giving its proper to workers, to farmers, to them. But as Marx put it, his only true social base was the thugs, the rebel. Rebel. And again, the same with Hitler, S.A. thugs, and so on and so on. Okay, but this is another topic. What I want now to go on is to show how uh, there is another which I already developed, I just repeat it again, another excess of Hegel, where he clearly makes a mistake with regard to his own logic, sex. I mean, there is a certain image of Hegelian process, which is that of simple, gradual, evolutionary culturalization, in the sense of, to put it very simply, If you conceive sex as a natural substance, we copulate like animals, but then you say, but we humans are more and more conferring a cultural form on it. Like, I like a woman, or a woman, or a man likes me, or two men like me, so that you will not accuse me of binary logic, whatever. <laughs> uh, 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 yeah, this is where Judith Butler was furious of me, you know. Because once I debated, with, and I said, okay, two women, three men, because she's always attacking me from binary logic. And I said, okay, okay, now you will get more than binary logic. <laughs> uh, okay, but what I want to say is that, uh, 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 so again, the idea is, I like someone and I'm a cultured man, so instead of raping him, her beating, I write poems, blah, blah, blah. We do it in a cultivated form. But uh, what Hegel didn't get, but he should have gotten it, is that uh, it's not that we simply pass from nature to culture. The moment you have culture, there should be an excess of denaturalized Nature. And we have a name in eroticism for this excess. The name is this, Tristan and Isolde, absolute sexual passion, which is self-destructive, you know, this Tristan, Isolde idea, let's lose ourselves in the self-destructive ecstasies of absolute enjoyment, of love, death, and so on. So, again, what Hegel did, didn't see is that what we are trying to control, gentrify, domesticate through sexual rituals, symbolic forms, is not directly nature, but it's already an excess over nature. And, okay, to repeat uh, another of my ancient uh, points, uh, this is where I think if we are true Hegelians, we can nicely show how right was Lacan, namely where Catholic Church is wrong apropos sexuality. This idea that the only civilized sexuality is ultimately for procreation and that uh, sexuality done only for lust is like it makes us like beasts and so on and so on. You know, uh, I claim that again the structure is mar much more complex. Uh, the, the reason Catholic Church is, insofar as it is, I know it's more complex, but basically, nonetheless, the basic model of sinning is, uh, uh, is, uh, 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 is uh, to engage in illicit sexual activity, it's that it fights sexuality not in the sense of higher spiritual vocation fighting elementary biological life, but 
one spirituality fighting another spirituality. Secretly, they know that the first proto-metaphysical experience, by metaphysical experience, I mean something very simple. I mean, you are engaged into something which goes beyond your biological interest. You know, you kind of, you are literally in a platonic way. You know, you are struck by something, you are ready to sacrifice everything for it. Sexual lust is this, my God. It's absolutely not procreative. And Hegel knew it in some of his writings. Namely, what he knew is that when you have a certain purposeful activity, which serves a purpose, the way you, an instrumental, biological, simple purpose, the way you spiritualize it is to take part of this activity and posit it as an end in itself. Like, you make love no longer for procreation. In this way, love becomes, or sex even, becomes a, a, a space to, 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 to realize a kind of metaphysical radical passion. In other words, Catholics are totally wrong here, I claim. It's precisely when you do sex for procreation that you are like animals. Animals, solely, they do like that. You know, they, 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 they populate in certain rhythms, times of the year and so on. We are, okay, we want to, we cannot, but we are ready to do it in principle all the time. <laughs> but so you see my point. I claim that this is the message of Freud. It's a very nice one. This should be the proper Freudian Hegelian answer to spiritualists. It's not, oh, you believe in some shitty spiritualism, we know the only reality is power, sex, whatever. No, that we see spirituality where you oppress it. We see a properly metaphysical dimension in it. Which is why, I'm so sad I don't have time for it, but which is why I also think that church is totally wrong in its... Uh, you know, this, my God, I hate them here when they say, you know, this is supposedly a deep thing to say. Today's crisis is not economic. It's spiritual, ethical crisis. No, the first thing to say here is that Benjamin was right. Capitalism is deeply an ethico-religious phenomenon. What is wrong with capitalists, greedy capitalists, is not that they are too egotists. They are not. A true capitalist, it's a pale, half-dead fanatic who is ready to forsake all his pleasures just so that, you know, the capital turns around more and more profit and so on and so on. So again, I claim when we advocate ecology against capitalist exploitation, it's not a struggle of proper altruistic humanity against some brutal egotism. No, I claim it's precisely a struggle of simple egotism for you, maybe for your children, against this metaphysics of capitalism, literally metaphysics. Because isn't capitalism metaphysics embodied? In what sense? You have things really happening. This is the physical dimension. People working, consuming, whatever. And then you have, it's literally more and more a separate sphere. What goes on in Wall Street and so on, these purely virtual financial speculations, which literally ideas rule the world. Something is happening in this virtual space, which decides 
the fate of material production. You know, this is for me the metaphysical dimension of capitalism. You work in a company, you think everything is okay, then there is some Wall Street speculation and your company goes bankrupt. And it's totally non-transparent for you. You say, but what was wrong? The product is selling well, we were working well, and so on and so on. So, so again, I think that here, uh, here, uh, here, I think that, that uh, this is, again, the point of Freudian sexuality. It's not kind of a vulgar biological reductionism. It's exactly the opposite. It, and intelligent, how is that French mystic uh, woman called? Uh, is it Simone? Weil? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She saw this wonderfully when she wrote how once in one of her mystical meditation of how even in the lowest sexual passion. You can see metaphysical union, metaphysical uh, dimension at its purest. And incidentally, she also has, I don't have unfortunately time to, uh, to uh, quote it now, she, do I have it here? she also put it in wonderful way, this idea of a, uh, this idea of a proletarian position, this idea that in every society there are those who are reduced to nothing and so on, and they are the only one who, from their very position, are, uh, are telling uh, the truth and so on and so on. So, just to conclude now, uh, if you read Hegel in this way, that is to say, if you insist on an excess of negativity, which persists beyond any sublation, which is always there as a threat, like the necessity, and you have different expressions of this, like the necessity of war as the untying of social links. In war, we are all reduced to singular individuals ready to die, if you are, haha, for our country. That is to say, all the complex social structure no longer matters. You have rebel. You have madness. You have passionate sexual love. All these are excesses, uh, sorry, examples of this excess of radical negativity. And it is clear that we are dealing here with the Hegelian version of precisely a form of repetition. So I claim that nonetheless Hegel had this dimension of repetition, but was not ready fully to Fully to, uh, fully to confront it. So again, maybe I should now slowly stop, not to become a counter-revolutionary, no? But please read at but least... What? To become a counter-revolutionary. Oh, but again, as I told you... Uh, sorry, just to conclude. No, don't be afraid. One minute. Like, people were shocked and asked me, how can you talk? Because I had a round table in France. Uh, no, I uh, was a host of his TV show, Alain Finkelkraut, no? How can you? I told them, wait a minute, and even Alain, but you agreed here with me. The bad guys are those sleazy guys like uh, Bernard-Henri Lévy, Glucksmann, Philippe Solers in France, but Finkelkraut is reactionary, but he's a, a kind of honest conservative, pessimist, ready to admit the deadlock. We can learn more from such people than from cheap liberals, you know. The problem with cheap liberals or cheap conservative, no, reactionaries, is that they always see a simple solution. They see a solution. Hinkelkraut just, in, in this sense, yes, why not? I think that every true 
communist has to take upon himself the conservative, authentic conservative lesson. Which is the basis of your talk. Uh, you say that every true communist is also a monarchist. So when we have the royal wedding at the end of next month, all of us communists should go out. Don't and provoke me into vulgarities. If you want, no. no. If you take me, if you want me to be vulgar, Kate, Mi Kate Middleton has two thin lips. She is not my type. Okay. No, but seriously. No, no. Wait a minute. I said it clearly. Hegel is too short there. You can make democracy function. In precisely this, what Hegel wanted from what Hegel wanted from what Hegel wanted from the, from the king, no? Hegel was aiming at, at the right point there. My critique of Hegel, sorry, now just to finish, is that uh, he wasn't aware that the solution he proposes is impossible. That precisely when you have a king, this position of a king who fully accepts his stupidity is subjectively impossible. With people, you can do it. Like monarchy functions, sorry, democracy functions better here. You cannot have a king who fully accepts that he is an idiot, you know. There must be a certain minimal uh, fetishization and so on and so on, no? But when Lefort said all that, I mean, they left attack yeah. to Lefort, you remember, back in the 70s. Anyway, that was a wonderful uh, talk today. Can I remind you, you can say until you Can I remind you that the Critical Theory Summer School, which starts in, I think, the 27th of June, includes amongst uh, many delectable presences a Slavoj who will give a whole week of lessons on his uh, new Hegel book. The, uh, the deadline for applications, I think, is you know, pretty... Sure, and we already had you know, sort of a huge number of applications from all over the world for the two-week uh, uh, critical theory school. Let me remind you that we have, of course, at Ken Balibaza, Nick Nancy, Drusilla Cornell, and then here from Backbeck, uh, Esther Leslie, Stephen Frost, and my humbleness. So if you are interested, please apply pretty soon because the place is more or less for run out. So let us Did you notice what bullshit he is saying? It's all full, but nonetheless applied. Like, you know, this is when you have large stocks and want to sell them. Last chance, last chance. No, no. <laughs> yeah. you know, if we see a surge of applications, we will increase the number of places. Yeah. <laughs> so, thanks very much, Slavi. Wonderful that I No, I was tired, jet-lagged, and I promise you, if you are stupid enough to come in June, then I will terrorize you. There will be much more close reading of Hegel. Uh, no? You get his own dialectics. If you're stupid enough, in reality, so clever you want to come and listen to Zizek, then, of course, you will not get it when you come next time. Yes? You are a Greek, you are, you are a Greek sophist. You are a Greek sophist. You deserve the fate of Socrates, but not poison. Chop, chop the head in public. Okay, so uh, as you know, there is a freedom art starting in Mallet Street. So those of you intend of turning theory into action, please join the march. Uh, but again, no, no, now a serious thing. Here, I really ask you to go because I'm not, my God, I'm always uh, obscene, stupid, but here I'm not kidding. It is, even if you are a conservative, we agreed on that, no? You are... My God, sorry to tell you this, but, and you mean the oh, Judeo-Christian European civilization, you are fighting for it here. This, if you talk about, again, threat to Europe, 
what is worth saving in Europe, egalitarian theory and so on. It's not poor African or whatever immigrants. Those in power now are the true threat to Europe, my God, no? I mean, we should be very arrogant and clear here. We are not involved in any politically correct bullshit here. They are the threat to Europe, my God. It's catastrophe what is happening. United States are, again, as I told you already the last time, look at this paradox. Uh, the the, the Pittsburgh Hegelians, although they are the bad guys, the recognition people, no? They told me they already have more than half German students. You know where are we coming? If you are a German and want to learn Hegel, you have to go to Pittsburgh, to the United States. I mean, Europe is in such a terrifying intellectual... It's not only you. It's in my country. It's in Germany, I know. It's in France, what I know. What is your country? Sorry? What is your country? Uh, slave country. Slovenia, slave. Slav, it comes from slave and so on. But that's <laughs> No, seriously. Uh, there also, we have reformed. They are just cutting in short. It's even nice that your... How is he called? Minister of Universities or what, no? Uh, what I like almost about your minister is that he was brutally open, you know. You don't have to do any complex deconstructionist analysis to get the point. He said it. This was terrifying. You remember? He said, for us, if you want to study social sciences, humanities or art studies, this is not a concern of state. It concerns you as a private individual and, and so on and so on. I mean, at least he said it openly. We don't need some... And it was even almost stupid, because, you know, like uh, a typical, more intelligent conservative would have masked some kind of a national interest, blah, 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 no? His name is David Two Brains Willens. He's no. Two Brains, so very clever. Ah, but, no, seriously, you're not kidding. Yes. No, no, David Two Brains Willens. Two, how... Two, two brains, two brains. Literally. Yeah. No, but we have an answer in our vulgar jokes. Is that there is so much stupidity in his brain that you need two brains to, to find a space for it or whatever, no? Okay, so... Okay, thank you very much. Thanks very much.